Normally on the show, we attempt to keep things as child-friendly as possible, but every now and then we can hit some harder subject matters or may even have some verbal discourses that may not be suitable for younger or more sensitive ears to hear. In this episode, there may be either a discussion on more mature topics or may have strong language or perhaps both at once. Your discretion is advised. Hey friends and fellow geekologists, you're getting ready to hear one of the panels we hosted at Theology Beer Camp last October in Missouri. A huge thank you to Trip Fuller and Homebrew Christianity and the Venues Church for hosting us and allowing us to be a part of the zest. We had so much fun and it was so meaningful to be at the intersection of philosophy, theology, and pop culture with some amazing experts in those fields of discipline. We do have the dates for Theology Beer Camp 2024. It will be October 17th through 19th in Denver, Colorado. And this year, the title for Beer Camp is going to be The Return of the God Pods. You can follow God Pods 2024 on social media with any updates uh, that they um, share with us. And tickets are on sale now. And so we hope to see you there in October. everybody how are we doing yeah. all right so um last night i lost my voice but this morning i have it back it's a it's a miracle the force is strong with this one i'm very excited that there's now a balance of the force um really excited to be here welcome back to the geek stage uh my top chief fandom is star wars i'm really excited about this panel uh my name is will rose i'm one of the hosts and curators of the podcast systematic geekology and what we do at Systematic Ecology is we try to cultivate healthy conversations among those things that we geek out on. Because we all know that uh, fandoms can be uh, opinionated. Uh, it can sometimes get uh, uh, toxic and argumentative. And uh, so at Systematic Ecology, we're like, well, maybe we create a different tone. Maybe we can not be that like clickbait of ranting about something that you hate watch because of the fandom. But we want to have deeper conversations around the intersection of the big questions around theology and philosophy and the things that we geek out on like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and um, One Piece and th those things. And so when I think of um, a fandom that exudes harmony and agreement and, um, and peace, I, I think of Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to have a conversation around Star Wars uh, there's so much to talk about and unpack, and I'm really excited about uh, this panel and conversation. And so, uh, Travis, we're going to invite Travis to the stage. He can introduce himself and who he is, what he does, where he teaches, and uh, he can share his geek cred around uh, Star Wars. And then after he gets finishes, after he finishes uh, having a conversation or his talk with us, then uh, we'll unpack that with some podcasters and get questions from you all. So, glad you're here. Thanks, Travis. Thank you. Is this mic close enough to me? Are we picking up? Awesome. So I'm Travis McMacken. I am, I've got a lot of fancy titles um, that I have accumulated through very little effort, thanks to being a white dude in the Midwest. But um, I'm the Butler Bible Endowed Professor of Religion and Associate Dean for the College of Arts and Humanities at Linwood University. And my boss, the Dean, gave me time off this week to come down here and hang out with y'all. And she made me promise to tell you that in the College of Arts and Humanities at Lindenwood University, we know that our students are going to have to save the world for all of us. And so we try to give them the powerful skills that they need to do that 
because our mission is humanity and we want them to be able to make their own way and tell their own story. And telling stories is what we're here to talk about today with the story of Star Wars and also the stories of religious traditions. So uh, you wanted me to share my geek cred. I have no geek cred. Um, I am a fusty um, college professor and the kind of person who takes a little bit of pride in that. Um, students seem to dig it from time to time, though. And I ended up here because Tripp knew, he and I go way back, but he knew that I teach a class called Star Wars and Religion, or Religion and Star Wars. I never remember which one I put first. Religion and Star Wars. And the basic idea of that class is to try to teach the main religious traditions of the world through the lens of Star Wars. And I landed on that as a strategy for teaching, quote unquote, world religions kind of curriculum, because I'm in a non-confessional, but very culturally Christian environment. And that creates some interesting challenges because I get two kinds of student. There's one kind of student who are non-practicing or minimally practicing when it comes to religion or a religious tradition. And when they encounter something like a world religions curriculum, it's really overwhelming to them. And they have a hard time finding a way to get into that. Um, somebody a lot smarter than me, and I unfortunately can't remember their name, once said that learning a religious tradition is like learning a language. If you don't learn one, you can never learn others. And so that's a really tricky thing to overcome. But then on the other side, I get a lot of students who um, are very, very deeply embedded and shaped by popular American evangelical Christianity. And they have a hard time engaging with a kind of world religions curriculum for a completely different reason. Namely, they're so invested in the quote unquote truth of their position, everything else has to be wrong. And that's the only way that they can interact um, with these things. So um, why does Star Wars help with that? Well, um, it lowers the stakes for the evangelical types because it's all make-believe anyway, and they don't have to get so excited about it if I'm telling them how in Star Wars this concept develops from Chinese religious traditions and how all of that works. They can think of that as, you know, somehow intellectually interesting maybe, but it's not perceived in the same way as a threat to their own religious beliefs. Um, and for the people who don't have formation in a religious tradition, if they know the Star Wars stories or can get into it, it can form that point of contact for them so that they can see how these things function there and then make that translation a little easier to how religious traditions play out in the world. So that's the so-called method to the madness of trying to teach religion with Star Wars. Now, I want to try to make sure that I'm being mindful of the time so that we can have a good conversation um, and so I'm going to do what I did in a session yesterday and set a timer on my watch. And I'm going to do 20 minutes, if that's all right. And we'll just see how close this comes in. I always overprepare, always. And I never get through most of it, but that's all right. So um, Star Wars draws on many different religious traditions in constructing its world. And this is another reason I think it engages really well or connects really well with the generation of folks that I'm currently teaching. Because these folks are living in an inherently syncretistic and buffet-style religious world, right? Even those evangelical American Christian types, they're all the same. They've read The Secret, um, just all, and, and they've been influenced by all of these other cultural things through their, their pastors or through their 
peers or their social media accounts. And it, it's really a buffet style sort of thing, the way religion functions in our world today. And so you get the same thing in Star Wars, like all the different religious traditions are there, bits and pieces mixed up and mangled together. And so I think that just feels familiar to them in terms of how religion works. But there are definitely some overarching religious themes that feature prominently in Star Wars from, let's call it the six or seven main religious traditions in the world. Um, so for instance, and these are gross simplifications, but you get the idea of how you can then get into the Star Wars story through these traditions. The whole idea of the force with its light side and dark side, this is deeply drawing on Chinese religious traditions, right? The concept of yin and yang, these opposite but interpenetrating forces, the dynamic of which is what drives time forward, right? That's all deeply embedded in the Chinese religious traditions. And the idea of the force itself, the idea of the Tao, um, this overarching, it's, it's the force, basically. If you understand the force, you understand the Tao at some really deep conceptual level. So um, that's a huge set of religious themes that suffuse Star Wars. Um, then if you look a little further to the West from China, uh, at Hinduism and Buddhism, especially as Buddhism developed in India before it became Chan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism uh, in the East, the Far East, um, you have the themes of duty and attachment. So duty and attachment, very important in the Hindu and then the Buddhist traditions, performing your duty, identifying what your duty is. You've got the whole caste system in Hinduism to tell you what your duty is or what sets of duty uh, you might need to perform attachment and how you relate to the doing of your duty and to the outcomes of your actions, right? There's a huge ethical element here. Um, all of that is tied into Star Wars in some key ways as well. And then this is a little bit more of a stretch. I don't find this tradition as clearly in Star Wars, and that in and of itself would be an interesting thing to tease out. Um, but insofar as you also have a theme in Star Wars of, and this is key with the Jedi Order and anything pre- um, uh, gosh, uh, episode four, you've got submission to duty, right? Or um, needing to submit to a master or the Sith apprentice and the Sith Lord and the relationship there. And just this, this idea of submit, submission of your will to a principle or to a person or what have you, this connects in some ways, not in other ways, with Islam, so that's another way you can get into those conversations to talk about, well, what kind of submission are we dealing with when we're talking about the Islamic tradition? And then finally, um, Judaism and Christianity, the themes in Star Wars about sacrifice and love, which are some of the more obvious themes uh, in Star Wars as the uh, property has progressed. Those come out of the Jewish and Christian traditions in some key ways. So like religious traditions, Star Wars is about how people make choices, form relationships, form communities, and ultimately make meaning together in their lives. It's what Star Wars is about. Every single character has an arc that's, well, main character has an arc that's invested in these kinds of things. And those are exactly the kind of things that religious traditions are invested in. They're trying to figure out who we are as a particular group of people and how do we fit in to the broader world. You know, who are we? Why are we here? Kinds of questions, questions of ultimate meaning. And so those are the same kinds of questions that Star Wars characters are engaging in. And so Star Wars, in its storytelling around these characters and these questions, taps into the depths of what it means to be human. And you can see this 
even at just a cursory glance, of what motivates some of the key characters in Star Wars. What's meaningful to them throughout the story. And so if we just look at episode four, where it all begins, right? You see uh, Leia's motivation. She's idealistic. She has some really clear values about democracy and the Republic Senate and what's left of it anyway at that point. Um, She has an identity in terms of who she is with respect to the people of Alderaan, right? And then she gets radicalized by violence, which is an important theme, especially in episode four, but all throughout Star Wars. Uh, But she gets radicalized with the destruction of Alderaan. She was already working with the resistance, but kind of holding that line one foot on each side. But once that happens, um, she's full on the rebellion side and uh, fully radicalized against the Empire. So there's there's Leia. Um, Vader, Anakin as was, uh, his motivation is power. That motivation of wanting power is based in fear, right? Um, From the beginning, he's enslaved as a child, then he's taken away from his mother, then he's restricted by the Jedi Order, and he's um, feeling very much out of control, so he wants control, right? He's afraid because he has none, so he wants it. And that's um, one of his driving motivations. Luke's motivation, a different set again. He's Motivated in some ways by ambition, but also by a need for adventure, a need for growth beyond the horizon of where he's, he's developed in his early life. Um, and he's early on not thinking much about what that would mean, right? He's not politically aware. He wants to go to the Starfighter School for the Empire and become a pilot, right? He's not politically awakened at that point yet. But then what happens? Radicalized by violence when the Empire kills his aunt and uncle. And then from then on, um, the thing that motivates him is personal attachment, right? So all through the original trilogy, what's he keep saying? I have to go help my friends, right? That's what's driving him the whole time. It's that idea of personal attachment to these people and their cause. And then, of course, there's Han. And just to lay my cards on the table, Han shot first. We just need to get that out of the way. <laughs> you got a cozy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> His motivation um starts out yeah, right. In the original. Yep. <laughs> you need to make that t-shirt. Sell it at beer camp next year. But he's motivated by money and ego. Um, or like another um character played by the same actor, Fortune and Glory. Maybe we need that session next year, Indiana Jones. Um, but Eventually, through making personal choices, he begins to be motivated by attachment, right? He has the opportunity to leave, and then he comes back, right? Um, And again, that importance of how choice plays into the formation of meaning, whether in in the intersection of individual choice and community choice, right? And that's a, a dynamic that you get throughout the films. So all of that is kind of by way of setup for how I approach teaching Star Wars and teaching religion together with students. And in the nearly 12 minutes that I have left, I want to talk about basically one theme that I see emerge in um, Star Wars about religion specifically. Um, And that's the question of the interplay between empire and bad religion. Okay. Empire and bad religion. So first off, who destroys Alderaan? The Empire, but who gives the order? 
Ah, who? Moff Tarkin, not Darth Vader. Now, Leia blames Vader. He's the symbol of the Empire, but he's not the one that gives the order. And I think this is really interesting that it's Tarkin and not Vader because it isn't quote unquote evil religion that commits this atrocity that is so central to that whole first trilogy, right? That gets that plot really off the ground. It's not bad religion, so to say, that does it. It's not Vader. Um, It is simply a military cog in the machine of power who doesn't seem to be motivated by anything except being (laughs) a cog in the machine of power, right? You can imagine Tarkin saying something like, I did my duty, right? And so I think of Hannah Arendt and her reflections on evil in connection with the Shoah in World War II and the banality of it all, right? That it doesn't always have to be motivated by some grand vision or some capital E evil scheme, right? Demonstrating the power of distinction. Right. Demonstrating the power. Yep. (laughs) Well, right. It was what? Alderaan was the Trinity site? Trading site. Okay, I heard Trinity. Oh, okay. I'm like, how is the doctrine of Trinity connected to Alderaan? I was very confused. (laughs) But it's just that cog. So the banality of evil, the commonplaceness of it, and the way that it can so easily co-opt people who aren't otherwise thinking about what they're doing. They're just doing their job, right? And so that's something that I think that that piece of Star Wars offers us for reflection. But you also see in that episode especially, there's something of a tense relationship or at least a differentiated relationship between um, the Empire and the Empire's military and Vader as a Sith Lord, right? So there's one point where an officer ridicules Vader's ancient religion, right? So the empire, as it func- the empire seems functionally atheist, right? Which is interesting in and of itself, because then you can get into the secularization thesis, which basically says that the more technologically advanced the society becomes, the less religious, religious it becomes. And we've been arguing about this for generations of scholars. Now, I can't even remember who came up with this originally. It was probably Max Weber. He came up with a lot of these, these theories. Um, but it seems to be embodying that. However, um, there's that, that piece where there's still Vader and the Sith kind of behind it. I'm going to come back to that. First, I want to make the point that in the sequels, you see this again. So with the First Order, um, there's an officer, and this is in episode nine, right? The very last episode. He describes their allies on Exegol, which is the Sith planet that has been lurking out there in deep space. He describes them as a, quote, cult and as, quote, conjurers and soothsayers. But then, this is key, Another officer says that they are happy to join with such people in the interests of maintaining power, right? So functionally secularist empire, functionally secularist, um, functionally atheist first order, but in for the sake of power, will make a deal with quote unquote bad religion, right? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep trying to weed out the Huguenots and root them out of their fortresses. Yeah. 
So this raises the question, is a secular empire a front for bad religion? And I think that in interesting ways that other people are way more equipped to tease out than I am. It ties into the last session that we all just heard together and other things folks have been talking about and we'll talk about this weekend. Is there a sense in which this is the fear that motivates so much of the conservative right and their disaffection with the idea of a secular society? And so you see on that side, conspiracy theories popping up about folks in government who are not religious or not religious in the way that they are, which is effectively the same thing as far as they're concerned. And just crazy things that these people are involved in. Child trafficking, et cetera, right? And I think that's because they cannot conceive of how there can actually be a secular society. If, if something is secular, that means that's just a front for some bad religion who's in the background pulling the strings. And so Star Wars, interestingly, um, both gives, gives you an example of that and kind of reinforces that concern at one level, but at the same time, it puts it on the screen and you can talk about it in a way that's one step removed and maybe you can get people to engage a little more reflectively over that thanks to Star Wars. Now, there's different ways to respond to the intertwining of empire and bad religion, and for this I want to go to the sequels very briefly. And again, to put my cards on the table, I like the sequels more than I dislike them. Um, there's that whole digression in episode eight we could have all done without, I think. But otherwise, it's um, some pretty good storytelling. But Luke ultimately withdraws from the world because of his fears over the entanglement of religion and power, right? He feels he's failed with um, Kylo, with Ben, and that um, the whole enterprise of what he was up to trying to rebuild the Jedi Order is fundamentally flawed, right? He's feeling unable to escape that cycle of um, co-optation by power. And so he's like, it's got to die. So he's sitting on the island waiting for it to die. And everybody else is dealing with his absence, which is the absence for them of God in a way, because it's the absence of hope. What does hope or what does Luke symbolize in episode four? What's the title? A new hope. So Luke is hope and he's bugged out, right? Hope is gone. He's waiting for his religion to die. He calls it a religion, which might be the first time it's called a religion in the whole franchise, right? At least in the, the film franchise, right? So he's waiting for it to die and everybody else is trying to find hope in the absence of hope, especially Ray who has to go on this quest to find hope, right? So Ray's waiting at the opening of that episode of episode seven, but what's she waiting for? She's waiting for somebody, some kind of a calling, some kind of meaning. For her, that means a family that's going to come back to her. So that's where she's going to construct and find meeting, that personal attachment of family relationships. But she ends up having to make her own family, which she's already doing with BB-8 which then extends to Finn and then Han and Leia as surrogate parent figures. Um, at one point, you might remember Kylo looks into her mind and sees that she thinks of Han as a father figure, right? Put the, hit that nail, brought that right out into the open there. And uh, in order to, to find that sense of family and belonging, she has to go find Luke, right? The missing family member in that sense, the missing hope. Um, 
skipping up to episode eight, there's that great line that Luke says to Kylo, but also other people. But he says it to Kylo at that final confrontation in the end. Luke says, amazing. Every word of what you just said is wrong. Great line, right? The hilarious thing is that every word that Luke said that whole episode has been wrong too. (laughs) Right? So he's withdrawn and he thinks that that's the way to move forward. And he learns through that episode that it's not. Now he has to face the reality that his part of the story is ending, but that doesn't mean that the story is done. And that doesn't mean that his role is just to disappear um, without having anything else to do, right? So he's talking to himself as much as anybody in that moment. So for instance, Luke told Ray that the force isn't about lifting rocks, but what's Ray have to do <laughs> at the end of episode eight? Lift rocks. What did Luke do when training with Yoda on Dagobah? He had to lift stuff, right? So in a certain way, Luke is reconnecting with um, his religion, with the core formative things that shaped him. He's reclaiming them in that last moment in a way that he feels is constructive, right? He mocks Ray for expecting him to walk out alone and face down the whole First Order, but what does he do, right? He walks out alone and faces down the whole First Order. And what's he motivated in, by in this, right? When Ray is saying this, Ray's like, we need powerful Luke Skywalker to come in power and save us, right? And so Luke performs this, but in a very different way, right? Because he's force walking. He's not actually destroying Kylo. He's not actually destroying the First Order. He's confronting them in what is effectively a nonviolent way, even though we get a great laser sword fight out of it, right? (laughs) But he's confronting them in a basically nonviolent way so that he can protect the people he loves and cares about, principally Leia, who's there trapped, right? That personal attachment again. But this shows us that the force is surprising. It's never under control. It's not rational. It's intuitive. And this is, of course, John 3, 8, the spirit blows where it will, but also in critical ways, part of the Taoist and Zen Buddhist traditions. Now, Ray um, has a very different way of engaging with or dealing with religion and bad empire. Unlike Luke withdrawing, Ray is engaging, right? She's moving forward. And what Luke ultimately learns from Ray is that he needs to engage as well. But on the basis of what does he engage? On the basis of continuing to perpetuate the power struggle? of trying to win a battle? No, he engages on the basis of attachment, of love of friends, of love of the community, and wanting to protect them and keep them safe and give them a future, give them hope. My timer's going off, so I'll try to wrap this up. All right, so what's Ray's mantra in episode nine, which gets at the deep core of her whole character? Be with me, right? She says it over and over and over, be with me. It's that sense of connection. And you've got that great cloud of Jedi witnesses moment, right? Um, And in many ways, this returns to episode four and what's motivating Luke and Leia from the very beginning of the whole story. It's that sense of connection and personal care and personal attachment and community there. Now, Ray's love for friends also overcomes her fear, right? She's very fearful all along. She's taking that next step, not really feeling confident in it right? But she's putting herself out there and acting in faith, so to speak. 
It's, and it's because she's free to love because she's free of the formal Jedi training. So again, in what ways do religious traditions not only provide avenues of expression for what it means to be human, but cut off other parts of what it means to be human? Anakin is unable to overcome his fear. Anakin's fear overcomes his love, arguably in the Star Wars universe, because his love is restricted by the Jedi Order, which separates him from his mother to begin with, which um, makes him keep his relationship with Padme secret, right? All of this only feeding into his isolation, and isolation is where fear grows. And of course, there's also a difference between quote-unquote love as a possession, which is power-driven, and love as free self-giving, right? That's an important part of this story, too. But it's love in episode nine that finally, finally turns Ren, Ben Solo, back to the light, right? And it begins to be enacted in episode seven when he kills Han and Han lets it happen, right? His dad sacrifices his life for him. Um, you've got this interplay between Ben and Leia throughout, right? Um, and then Ray enters the picture. And it's ultimately for love of Ray and for love of his parents and for love of Luke that Ben is able to surpass his grandfather, which is the one thing that motivated him the whole time, right? He worships Vader and he surpasses him by being able to finish what Anakin started when Anakin threw the Emperor down the power chute uh, in episode six. And so through that power of love and connectedness, He's able to achieve what, and is stronger and more powerful than even Vader could be through the power of fear and hate, right? And so Ben saves those he loves from death, not through power as it's traditionally conceived, but through the power of self-sacrifice. And through that, he overcomes Vader's fear, right? So uh, payoff. Star Wars is ultimately about love versus fear. This is my argument. The main story in Star Wars is ultimately about love versus fear and the way love and relationships makes meaning in our lives. It's not always a happy story. One of my favorite films is Rogue One, right? But I, I would suggest that maybe the moment that this dynamic between love and fear becomes most clear in all of the, in all of the franchise is the Obi-Wan series. <laughs> Obi-Wan's showdown with Vader at the end of that series is the interpretive key for the whole thing. Because I hope you noticed, and I'm sure you did, that scene is line for line, action for action, a recreation of the battle on Mustafar, right? And Obi-Wan is able to overcome Vader and be more powerful than Vader in that moment. And also, you can read this back into Mustafar as well once you see it. Precisely because Obi-Wan is fighting for love and not fighting to quote-unquote win. And perhaps what held Obi-Wan back in the Battle of Mustafar is he's still um, tied to this Jedi sense of doing his duty, right? He wasn't able to tap into in as clear a way that sense of, no, what I'm really doing here is fighting for the people that I love and trying to protect them. And again, in, in both cases, he doesn't kill Vader. He defeats him. He doesn't kill him, right? Because he's achieved his goal, especially in the, the series of protecting Leia. So 
Star Wars, I think, is ultimately about 1 John 4, 8. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. Thank you. I can't believe that talk made me actually like The Last Jedi. Right? <laughs> Thank you for your pastoral care. You're very as, welcome. As a, as a prequels apologist, that was very cathartic. Yeah. Okay, somebody explain to me. My students, especially the young women, all think that Anakin is a compelling character in the prequels, and I just don't see He's it. He's hot. Really? That's it. That's disappointing. That's, That's not the only reason. It's not, no. He, yeah. Okay, let's hear it. Speak for the trees. So, um... I was telling some people yesterday I had my Obi-Wan Kenobi shirt on. It's Kenobi on one side and Obi-Wan on the other. Um, and I was saying that Kenobi's my favorite favorite thing Star Wars has ever done. But that um, when we ranked, there was this thing that you could find on the web, uh, website where you can rank all the Star Wars movies. And Attack of the Clones is my favorite. Um, which, sorry. That is an opinion. That's an opinion. It's good. But I love Attack of the Clones. And I think what I see in struggle that I struggle with and so he's relatable in that way I think a lot of the Jedi are not relatable because they're so packed into what the Jedi order has made them mm -hmm. preach that they don't act like normal humans yeah. and so Anakin to, to be a Jedi or to be maybe to be a Christian what it then means to just be a human that's trying to make it and yeah. so he struggles with real world problems of can I love the person I love freely? Mm -hmm. Can I do my job that I want to do and I feel destined to do? But also he's got pressures put on him. He has trauma from trauma. It's like all this trauma that's compounding. Mm -hmm. And I don't think um, we talk about this. This is my husband. A lot. We talk about this a lot, but um, Hi, husband. Yes, hi, husband. <laughs> all right. uh, he, his favorite Jedi is Qui-Gon. And so we've talked a lot a lot about how if Qui-Gon had not died, that that moment is when Anakin's fate was sealed. Oh, yeah, that's why it's called Duel of the Fates. Yes, yeah. because mm -hmm. it's, it's not um, that if Qui-Gon had raised him and been that father figure and master, his view of, I have, this is actually a question I had, was do you feel like Qui-Gon's view of the Force, being more connected to the Force than to the Order, is a healthy way to look at reconstruction after deconstruction, being more connected to source, divine, whatever, than to the church. Because that's yeah. the moment for Anakin that he's going to be there. Mm -hmm. So I, I had, um, before the sequels actually came out, I had two ways that I kind of hoped they would go. Um, one of them was to play on, to, to build up the story around Qui-Gon being a great Jedi, because there's a reason he's not on the council, right? His emphasis on the living force. Um, and so, and, and Obi-Wan, as much as I love him, and he's probably my favorite, I don't know why um, I identify with him somehow, but his, like in the Star Wars lore, he doesn't actually have that strong of a connection to the force, yeah. right? His power comes from um, strict adherence to the Jedi teachings, right? And it's kind of, I kind of think of it like he's maximized his efficiency <laughs> so that he gets um, every last drop <laughs> out of his connection to the Force. And so in one sense, his arc, as he taps in more to that attachment and that love for those around him, he becomes stronger, right? 
Um, because maybe the force is about love. Yeah. Maybe. Um, so Qui-Gon and the living force and that kind of the different formation that Anakin would have received, I think is a, definitely an interesting thing. And I was kind of hoping um, after episode seven came out that Ray would end up being descended from Qui-Gon somehow, but right. we didn't get that. Um, so that was one way I, I kind of hoped things would go. The other way is I think there's a, it would have been a really interesting um, and I think it would have been, it totally would have fit. You can watch the end of episode six in such a way that Luke actually falls and becomes a dark Jedi. And so I think it would have been really neat if the sequels <laughs> picked up that storyline. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they didn't. That's fine. Um, and, and for those in podcast land, Kim did a great um, little homily on like, human versus those attached so much to a Jedi religious order that it keeps them from being human or listening to others too. So that was beautifully done, Cam. I'm so proud. Yeah. Um, and then and then the bringing up of the, the Qui-Gon question of gray Jedi, we see that even, we see that in the sequel trilogy, but we start to see that even more in the Ahsoka series with Ahsoka, uh, Balin Skull, and like his like understanding of having an orange uh, lightsaber and not being like, yeah, we're not going to create this cycle that continues to happen. Where does a different direction we can take this in? So I think Dave Filoni is setting up for the next uh, movies to roll out and things. But, you know, in terms of how that relates, Travis, in terms of, I don't know if you've watched Ahsoka through or, or Balin Skull and the kind of the gray Jedi, is that just kind of where we are? Because I, I think in the first movie, we hear the stage goes like this, and correct me if I'm wrong. Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, old Ben, starts talking to Luke about the Force and it's like this idea. You're like, oh, cool. There's this religious idea, mysticism. I don't know. The first time we see it actualized is the next scene when Darth Vader chokes somebody out. <laughs> so as an audience, we're like, oh, it's not just a theory. It's real because there's some mysterious thing where this guy is choking somebody out. And then eventually later on, we see it happen. And we kind of look through Han's eyes of, is this just a hokey religion or is it um, something actual here that, that that's going on? And this progression of the force and how it's disarming and helping us look at, at uh, world traditions. But then here we are in our, whatever age we are in, in the 2024s with Balin's skull questioning the whole, mm -hmm. the whole thing, not just a religious institution, but the whole thing. Yeah. So I don't know in terms of... Well, in the first light side power we see is the Jedi mind trick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course. Which, <laughs> yeah. Which yep. is interesting in its yep. own way. So, yep. um, but that's... It goes back to that whole connection between Empire and Bad Religion because... And back to the prequels with Anakin. And I will say that I liked Anakin a lot more once I had the Clone Wars series to fill in a lot of the gaps. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you don't watch that. the Clone Wars and you don't like Anakin... Right, but that's the thing. Try. My students have like <laughs> seen the films. They have not watched the Clone Wars. Yeah. No, go watch them. Um, and just so everybody can see, full disclosure, what my cell phone background is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Um, okay, Great Jedi. So that's one thing that I was really disappointed with in Episode Eight. Right, is the way that they made that turn to have Luke talk about it as a religion mm -hmm. and wanting it to die. And even and then even though they did that and they burned the tree and the whole thing, then they show us that Ray saved the books. Yeah. I mean, it's just opportunity after opportunity yeah. after opportunity to try to get past the 
um, unnecessary dualism of it. Right. Right. right? And f- try to find a more unitive, balanced mm-hmm. way of being. Um, so that was, you know, a lot of missed opportunities there. And, yeah, and so- even Mark Hamill's like, why are you doing this? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think talking about The Last Jedi, I was like, yeah, I can understand why the failure and being isolated and that detached you from others is fear of failure. And then also like what Luke did at the end of Return of the Jedi and, and that his attachment is what brought balance to the force, right. not a detachment. So going that direction again was a little frustrating. But in terms of the connections and the symmetry you lay out in your talk about Last Jedi and what Luke learned from Rey uh, makes that movie better for me. Yeah, I, I feel I mean, like Grey Jedi is something people miss out on a ton if you aren't of the age where you would have played the Star Wars video games. Because the best and first description of a real great Jedi we see is in Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. Man. Which is the, like the greatest game of all time. Yeah. Can uh, confirm. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we get to know Jolie Bendo. And he goes through his qualms with the Jedi. Where he's like, no, I left. They, they got too holier than that. It was too, we're so different. Like, no, it's, there's a middle path. Yeah. Yep. yep. Question kind of building off of the great Jedi because I think the main franchise, um, you know, with Palpatine kind of being this fusion and head of like the empire and bad religion. Mm -hmm. And I think Star Wars throughout the series kind of frames this binary of the light side and dark side. It's more complex than that and more nuanced, of course. But when things go outside of, you know, kind of the orthodoxy of the Jedi order, that's, those are painted as the bad guys. So I wanted to get your, um, kind of get your take on the great Jedi by integrating that to like religious pluralism too, maybe in the Mandalorian and how it explores that between the two factions and maybe even talking about reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, how just your take on that fear and love and maybe, you know, anyway, with the Mandalorian as like kind of catalyst for that. So I'm going to have to admit to some heresy or at least um, heteropraxy. I haven't seen the Mandalorian yet. Okay. No worries. Well, I guess too, just more. <laughs> but I will talk about okay, the, cool, cool. the other thing because yeah, um, we get presented in the original trilogy with this very simplistic good versus evil binary. Yeah. And one thing that the prequels do, one thing that the prequels does well, especially when you have the Clone Wars to help it, is complicate that simple binary. Because um, some, I think it's somewhere in Episode Two. I think it's the end of Episode Two. Now it's somewhere in episode two where they're launching the um, imper- the Republican Navy for mm-hmm. the first time, right? And you see all the clones; they all look like stormtroopers. The all the Navy ships look like um, star destroyers, right? Yeah. It's the it's the Empire already, mm-hmm. right? And the Jedi have somehow gone from Qui Gon saying in Episode One, "We're peacekeepers," yeah. right? Yep, yep, yep. Now they're generals, now and this UN peacekeepers. Sure. (laughs) But even more aggressive than that. Um, And so when Anakin has those moments where he's like, really, what's the difference here? Right. There's a lot of truth in that. Right. Because what we are asked to think of as good religion has actually become bad religion. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Do it. Yeah. They've been flipped. Oh, well, Right. Yeah. 
Exactly. Right. Exactly. There's all these Jedi and nobody knows where the Sith are. Maybe it's imbalanced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. I want to repeat the question just in case people online. Yeah. So yeah, the yeah. question is, um, is there a moment in which, let's put it this way, is there a moment in which the Star Wars universe explicitly tries to reject the idea of redemptive violence? Fantastic question. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, like, and again, I haven't seen, maybe it's in Mandalorian. I don't know. Um, no. <laughs> no. No. Not no. there. <laughs> like, no. so, like I suggest, I think there are moments where it complicates it. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not sure that I would identify any explicit rejection. I think it's too much of a space Western. Yeah. Like so, it's, it's basic DNA is at a certain level redemptive violence as a storytelling. Yeah. So not in any of like the main cinema movie, you know, movie, cinema show kind of thing. But I feel like there was a, a really strong moment and uh, Mace Windu had his own series of books uh, where he and I get Shatterpoint. And I feel like in, in Shatterpoint, they, they kind of cover that, but not something that's like super accessible. Tales of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like in, in Shatterpoint, there, there's a moment where, uh, you know, horrible things happen to Mace's squad and, and they're like, oh, well, we have to, we have to get our get back for my younger audience. And Mace, yeah, which is amazing that it's Mace. And he's like, no. That's not the way. And and that and that goes to show with Star Wars, we have the like the nine movies, which is like the sacred text. And then you have the TV shows, and then you have the spin-offs, and you have the legends and the books, and so the apocryphal writing of the canon and the IPs. And is it legends? Is it real? Is it not? These these conversations. But I think underneath your question is that like, yeah, I think. George Lucas wanted something, you know, more intense, but faster, faster and more intense yeah. in terms of that was his get-go in 1977. There's plenty of great sci-fi before 1977, but when you get to him, he steps it up and yeah, there's lasers and there's um, lightsabers and duels and space Western, those things, but underneath he's playing around with mysticism and religion and, and, and those things that the Star Trek didn't. Um, but then, um, yeah, what, what's that underlying question is, what is this violence for? And why does it keep doing that? I do think Last Jedi, as much as I have problems with that, they, they wrestle with that too, this slow space chase through, mm -hmm. th through the, um, through <laughs> this chasing through, through outer space. Uh, while they have that time, they're questioning, as much as I also have problems with the Kendabite scenes, they're questioning like whose empire, who's not, who's, the weapons are for everybody. It's just, you know, you're glossing over who's what, you're all, enemies with with the common person so i think they play around with that and show its flaws with the violence or trying to get peace mm -hmm. through violence and i think that's the underlying question of it all that i think is also a mirror that holds up to our own country our own empire our own religions in terms of yeah right here james yeah sure connected to that uh so i'm you know i'm a religious so this is fantastic uh, so i'm coming to this with that lens and power dynamics in the mm -hmm. whole series every single episode we watch um there's this idea that Oftentimes, you know, the rebellion is going against it, but oftentimes the little, like the actual citizens of the galaxy are the ones that are trampling. Mm -hmm. um, Which is seen clearly in Andor, that series. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is, you know, the best thing Star Wars. yeah, yeah. yeah except <laughs> for Nazi fuel. 
<laughs> That's a great question. Rather than empire, as a result of the trade wars, it's all about mercantilism. It's all about making money, stuff. And so the mechanism of empire is built on struggle. And at the end of it, good religion is driven out by bad religion. The bad religion isn't used to justify or legitimize empire. Empire right. is, is legitimized on its own terms. Mm-hmm. Power. Yeah. Bad, bad religion enables profit, but it doesn't endorse. It, it, it's, a, it's another mechanism for maintaining, for mm-hmm. and exercising power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I. Right, sure, right, right. I get the sense that you really mean it. Yeah. So, so James, I was. No, I, go, ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I just James had a question or a point or something we were bringing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's seen what he's done. This is why we love James. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or has he seen into the depths of Anakin's soul to realize that that's his weak point, and now he's going to use it to manipulate him and overthrow him, and become. The dark Jedi master himself. That's where. That's how I thought. I, that's how I kind of hoped that they were going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah, Kim. Kim. And I think that's a key part of what Yoda means when he says to him that we are what they grow beyond, Mm -hmm. right? So Luke is stuck in his moment, and he needs to learn from Rey about what kind of possibilities there can be moving forward so that he can get unstuck (laughs) from his moment. Yeah, Yeah, I got this text from Tripp as as this was going on. So I don't know if he was listening back there or just made sure he wanted to lift his point. He goes, uh, contrast of submitting... Contrast of submitting to the master, Jedi Order, killing the master, Sith, growing beyond the master, post-Jedi via Force Ghost, Yoda, in episode eight. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, like often when people ask me, Kim, like, do you believe in God? I'm like, well, what do you mean by God? Um, because if you mean like uh, Santa Zeus ready to throw lightning at me if, if I'm naughty or nice, then yeah, I reject that God. Um, and I'm atheist toward that God, but if if through the lens of who who Christ is and what He shared and represented and expressed and po- His posture in the world, then then yeah, that's the God I want to lean into. So, and I think you could do that with the Force as well. In terms of, do you believe in the Force? Or what what aspect of the Force are you talking about? How are you manipulating it? Or is this the light or dark or a balance between the two? I think the same thing, and that. You'd be able to see that in and out of the Jedi and their personalities and what they're wrestling with is, is pretty cool. And so it's like, yeah, my head came up what I want them to see, Luke Skywalker too. You know, I need to let that go, but then see like what the struggles are going on within each Jedi in and of themselves um, as individuals, but also have this kind of religious structure too, I think is, is pretty yeah. important. Yeah, so it was very hard for me. I'm, I am 10 days younger than the Phantom Menace. Oh my uh, God. Yeah, baby. That's I, it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I grew up. You I know, feel really old. But yeah. 
the Star first Wars the first movie I saw in the theater was A New Hope in 1977. So yeah, you feel old? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who led him up here? <laughs> <laughs> just, no one stops you. There's another mic set up. You can just That's go right. sit down in front of it. Um, <laughs> so I grew up as a, you know, a big reader, a huge Star Wars fan, and I'm playing the games and I just need more Star Wars. So I read Legends. And I, you know, I'm not as big of a fan of like post Battle of Yavin, like post episode six novels but you know i read them and i enjoyed them and going from grandmaster luke to i am not a jedi the jedi do not exist was extremely difficult for me Mm -hmm. because that's just not who luke was and it it took me a long time to get past that Mm -hmm. doing it in one flashback yeah (laughs) it was almost like they were purposefully ripping it away from yeah it was because like even me as like an old republic fan uh, you know, I, you know, I didn't read all of the post episode six novels, but I read enough to be firmly attached to this idea of most powerful being in the universe, Luke Skywalker, and to have that turned into mm, Jedi. No, I like, I yeah. like to, I like to be here and milk my creatures. <laughs> <laughs> that what is me. your What is your favorite book? Like, I'm there's so much Star Wars. Darth Bane. Okay. The Darth Bane trilogy um, by Drew Ka- Timothy Zahn. I always get Drew Caperson and Timothy Zahn mixed up, but those are the best Star Wars books to me. Okay. There's your recommendation. You know, the, we, we, everyone in here, I feel like everyone has very strong opinions about Star Wars, shockingly. And I, uh, you know, but I wanted to ask Travis, have you, just as a question for you and your teaching, because you obviously you incorporate Star Wars and pop culture into your pedagogy. But I wanted to ask you, like, do you ever use Star Wars fandom as well to talk about positive or never negative aspects of, um, I don't know, interfaith, you know, within tradition interactions or no, nice. or even just give us yeah. your thoughts on maybe how that could be the, the that could be an interesting case study on what and how it's translatable to faith traditions. I have not. But I mean, the comments that we heard earlier about canon, I think James makes similar kinds of arguments. Um about the formation of canon and the kinds of conversations that go into that and what gets accepted and what doesn't. I mean, the the fandom is, it functions like a religious community functions, yeah, right? Absolutely. Which, which basically means that religious communities and fandom communities are all human communities. Mm-hmm. But it gives you an opportunity to observe those dynamics. And then maybe when you see them in a religious environment, you recognize them as more of the same rather than something that is unique and sacred and um, that has to be allowed and accepted to function a certain way because they actually know we don't have to be this way. We're just repeating the same kind of cycle. So anything that helps us gain, this is probably the religious prof in me, anything that gives you some kind of critical distance over religious traditions that you're practicing gives you the opportunity to practice those traditions more intentionally, more reflectively, which means hopefully better however we're going to define that um and that kind of goes back to the the question of atheism and you know if mm. anybody ever asks me if i believe in god i my, my initial response is well which one yep right there's lots of them and even just making people stop for a second and think oh wait a minute <laughs> that never crossed my mind as i asked that question i just assumed yeah. we we're all here um talking and thinking about the same gods like oh, wait a minute yep. give yourself a little distance um, so that you can engage more meaningfully. Yeah. So I, I do have a question for you. Um, so 
it's no secret at this point that A New Hope, you know, Star Wars, is based on a hidden fortress by Kurosawa. And I think, you know, that kind of started a trend. And, you know, we copied Japan. Japan copied us for a little while. Kurosawa was a huge Western fan. Um, but do you think there would be less of the Eastern religious influence if George Lucas hadn't seen the Hidden Fortress and based, you know, Star Wars on a Hidden Fortress? I don't know. I mean, my understanding is that he was also reading a bunch of what he thought were Buddhist texts, but actually turned out to be Taoist texts at the time. Um, so maybe, but I don't think that was the only thing feeding that aspect of it that he was engaged with. Yeah. So that's yeah. an interesting question, though. Yeah. But if you haven't seen a Hidden Fortress, set aside four hours of an afternoon and, <laughs> and dig in there. Because the first script George Lucas submitted, because he was you know, so heavily inspired, was, uh, I think it was 120 scenes. And a normal screenplay is about 40. So they were like, hey, cut that down. And that's why there's a trilogy. <laughs> exactly. It feels very Tolkien-like, the resident Tolkien guy. So, yeah, yeah. there's lots yeah. of tarot. Yeah, yeah. But, but if if you are a fan of westerns and you haven't like ever watched samurai movies, if you if you like the Magnificent Seven, go watch the Seven Samurai, the original, because Kurosawa was a genius. And if you like Fistful of Dollars, go uh, you watch Yojimbo, which you can buy them all in the same box set at Walmart. <laughs> go check it out. You get Yojimbo, Seven Samurai, Sanjuro, and uh, the Hidden Fortress. So. You set aside a weekend. You watch all four. Mm. Ryan. Uh, a question to another sci-fi franchise that comes So, it's fine. Ridley Scott's greatest fear possible path with us. Right. Whereas in Star Wars, often what I see is the thing outside of us but then come inside and also the people involved. Now in the Alien franchise, it's visceral, it's gory, it's the opposite of um, it's, but it's consumptive violence, literally. It's fear, Travis said this, love and fear. That is a way I escape fear. How do I escape how fear can literally tear me people I love? There's parts of Star Wars that are abstract. We, we associate with the Empire or with Vader, in the hallway scene in Rogue One. <laughs> like that, the, the embodiment of fear inside of you. Are there moments in Star Wars where characters underestimation inside of them? As opposed to the fear of what is outside of them? Luke on Dagobah goes into a cave. Ah, so good. There and go. has to face Vader and part of the mask comes off. Yep. Who, is it? Who is it? Yep. It's Luke. Yeah. Um, Ray all through the sequel, or in, in episode eight, there's that mirror scene, right? She's struggling because she doesn't know where she comes from. She's worried about what's in her, right? Um, Luke is worried about what's in Ben and decides he has to kill him, but then ultimately is worried about what's in him because he tried to do that, right? So I think that theme is definitely, definitely yeah. present. And that's what, that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and what is and what is your to say to Luke as he goes into the cave? You only have what you bring with you in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's if you would like, I'll I'll let you you know borrow my Steam account. You can play Knights of the Old Republic too. Uh, and uh, <laughs> really plugging so, that video game. 
Oh, have you? Okay, make sure make sure you look up Secret Cave on Corbin. You have to play it and see how your choices actually influence oh, the storyline. That's so, so process. So you go to Corbin <laughs> in the game. You go to Corbin, which is like the Sith planet, and there's a cave on Corbin that you can only get into if you have fully committed to the dark or the light side. If you are below like peak dark or light side, it will not let you in. But the end of this trial is you are fighting yourself because that is you know can you cope with what is in you. You know, before you continue with, you know, your path to redemption. And yeah, I, just, I just remember from that game being struck by how much easier it is to beat when you play Dark Side. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so much. It is so much easier. Oh, yeah. If you want, if you want a strategy guide, um, just like email me. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what to do. Yeah. Add me on Discord. Whoa. 100%. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 easier to get, you know, like your full dark side points faster and it's easier. The entire game is easier mm-hmm. uh, as a dark because you can use, you know, force lightning for cheaper. Not to, diver- a, you know, it's balanced. I want to take a little diversion here, but I think Ryan brings up the point. A lot of Star Wars revolves around the legacy characters. But there's also this underlying um, aspect and plot thread of like the alien and the other. And so in the cantina, you see like all the creatures and aliens who are coming together in the spaceport and like how they get along, not get along. But then what does the bartender say to the droids? We don't welcome those kind here. The, the droids, the AI, the technology, get out. And, and it's the same kind of thing. Like as a kid, I'm looking at them like, oh, that's so cool because there's like robots and ships and lasers and da, 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 da. But the underlying thing is also like, what is the integration of what does it mean to be human, uh, but also to be these droids who often, you know, who's the like, the common thread through all of them, R2-D2, like he's like saves yep. the day most of the time. Yep. Um, and so like, <laughs> so so the again, within this sci-fi thing, we're also looking at how the emergence of tech, uh, transhumanism, um, how do we emerge ourselves? Vader's like more robot, more machine than man. You know, they, it's not even human anymore, but yet he is. Um, uh, so those themes are, are lifted up in, in the franchise as well. The How we see the other, are they an alien? Are they part of us? Is our commonality? How do we get along? But also this emergence of tech and droids. And there's so much a part of their companionship and family. We would not want to see um, an in-shot of the Millennium Falcon without the droids on there, left behind. And that even in the, say what you say about the Solo movie, um, which I, I love, um, the fact that the Millennium Falcon is downloaded with like this rebel um, droid who wants to fight for their equal rights. And so you have this sassy droid who's now the been downloaded on my favorite spaceship and all the history of humanity. Like the Millennium Falcon represents um, the rebellion and downloaded on him is a rebellious droid. <laughs> I love that so much. So like in terms of all those things, I don't know if others resonate with that, if there's things that come up when it comes to aliens and droids and how they come I did. Uh, I went in with low expectations so and had fun. It's yep. so good. I, 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 I like that. And it answers the questions we needed to know the answers to. Like, how did you cut parsecs out of something? A parsec is a distance. <laughs> it's like, oh, he cheated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he literally just. Yeah. Like, Tom? Then thinking about your, your comment, Will, about uh, atheism, yeah, I, I don't believe in that guy either. And I'm reminded of. Us. Um, it was Paul. It was Paul. Um, yeah, yeah. Who looks around and sees the God he recognizes being also recognized. 
how necessary <laughs> when we think about the profession of you, think about our theological um, investigations and research, how necessary is insisting on a monotheistic, um, monotheistic singularity in doing, because it doesn't seem like even the early church was uh, dismissive of Vader. They acknowledged that the other altars were there, and they then just named this one's ours because we've seen it. And mm. this is the, the death as, as we, in 2,000 years, this is the death being itself that come to recognize the final events. How, how much as you think through monotheistic? So, <laughs> looking at the broth. How much time we got? Yeah, yeah. You can still get 15. Enough. 17 minutes? So I'm a Presbyterian, so we read it. But we, I also argue with it. So I don't actually like that passage very much at all. And Paul doesn't seem to be particularly successful with that evangelism gambit. And we know from Paul's own writings um, elsewhere in the canon, to go back to that, um, he makes a point to say that uh, I came to you and committed to know only Christ crucified, which is a very different evangelistic strategy. So um, if you want to see continuity between these texts, which you don't have to, because one comes from Paul and another comes from fan fiction about Paul. Um, <laughs> it's, a part, it's a part of it. Yeah. You, can, you could say that, uh, you know, Paul tried something out, didn't work, changed his, changed his strategy. Um, I'm not personally hugely invested in monotheism. Um, I think it's possible to do life-giving theology in conversation with it or not. Um, but the early church story that I would point us to, just because it's a badass story, um, is Polycarp. Does anybody know Polycarp? So Poly, go read The Martyrdom of Polycarp. It is a trip. They should make a movie out of it. But he's in a Roman stadium with friends and they're all going to be martyred and they're having a show trial in front of the Roman governor tribunal, whatever it is. And the crowd starts chanting away with the atheists, away with the atheists, away mm -hmm. with the atheists. Why? Because Jesus followers don't have an image. They are rejecting all of the gods that these people know, especially the emperor cult. Right. So they look like atheists. And what's Polycarp do? He waits for him to quiet down. He makes a huge gesture and he says, away with the atheists. So we're talking about the question of atheism. It goes back to what I said a few minutes ago. It's which God are we talking about? Right? There's tons of gods I don't believe in. Just an unending list of them. Right? <laughs> On a good day, there's one I believe in. Right? And so, because <laughs> well, I'm a Presbyterian, it's not up to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, now? <laughs> Do it stand up now. Um, but that, that's kind of how it, I mean, faith calls you forward into a new way of being in relationship with one another and in relationship with this thing that's somehow outside of us and in us at the same time and calls us into those relationships. And we do our best to describe that and articulate that and live that out. And that's going to look very differently in different faith communities and different contexts and different times and places trying to do it. So um, I think there's something really valuable in the idea of a Christian atheism. 
Mm-hmm. And that a lot of times, in order to be faithful Strong. Christians, we need to be atheists precisely with regard to the way that supposedly our God has been described, perhaps in monotheistic ways, perhaps in other ways. Brilliant. I also share that, like, the fact that you bring up um, Marcionism and Star Wars, that can only happen at beer camp. That's just fantastic. Um, No, but I I think, you know, there's also this play of, like, the physicality of the universe and then the mystical force that binds all things. And then the prequels, we it's the mysticism and disembodiment because Obi-Wan Kenobi struck down and he's just like a pile of clothes. He he floated up to be in the clouds with one with the force. But then you get in the in the prequels, you have like this biological determinism of metachlorines and taking blood samples and that's like stuff. So people start shaking their no, hands. Metachlorines are a later interpolation. It should not have been included in that text. Disagree. So critical yeah, yeah. scholarship tells critical. us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pull it out. The historical Lucas, the historical Lucas, we won't say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Minichlorians were there. They just didn't care anymore. But, but in terms of how you understand the force of like the mysticism, the embodiment, the attachment, um, one force ghost, but also it isn't in the, the sequel trilogy. There's the force ghost, but then he can also, he's not just phasing through things. He's physically doing things like pushing people, touching people. So there, there's an embodiment there. If you think like post-resurrection, Jesus phasing through walls, but also eating breakfast with his disciples, showing them his cars. Like they go both hand in hand. So this understanding of the force being just strictly just a physical thing. When I die, I'm just going to float up to the clouds and play a harp. Or is, you know, what we learn through science, there's, there's an entanglement and separability with the physical and the spiritual. They go hand in hand. They're not separate. And that's the Jewish understanding of resurrection too. Which is why I believe in bodily resurrection. Um, I guess Cross and I could have some thoughts about that, but they, um, but I think that's that plays out in in the story too. It's playing around with the force mysticism, but also entanglement and embodiment with that. Yeah. So, do we have like forty five minutes for me to talk about genetics and metachlorians? Mm-hmm. You yeah. have five minutes. Mm. Yeah, pass. <laughs> Good. <laughs> You're not a dummy. Um, You're not a dummy. But um, when we first heard it, I literally paused it, turned around, and go, "Oh my god, it's the force!" And so I'm curious about what. Much more enthusiastic. <laughs> it's hard for me sometimes to understand reality. Grounded, yeah. Um, and so I know it, but um, I kind of just want to hear what that theme is using force. I, I'll just, real quick, I'll just say when I think of that, I think of. You know, the force, we do reduce it to this binary, good versus evil, dark and light. But the way that Obi-Wan describes it with the Luke in that initial scene is that there's a connection with everyone together. So it's not just with other humans, but they're aliens and the ground they're walking on. And it's all living things, uh, everything that's on Dagobah, you know, all those things that are there, even the ones that swallow and spit out R2. Like they are a force connection with that. So that, that ground of being grounds me, but also allows me to see my connection with you and with my dog and with that plant and with our planet and like how we treat the planet and stewardship of creation. All those things come together with that. So yeah, I think that's exactly right. That connection's perfect when it comes to what does it ground me and how does it ground me? Yeah. Um, I don't know if other quick. So that's, all right, that's kind of how I was, I'm Pentecostal. Um, that's how I was raised. It was just God is everything. God is in everything. And I was also watching Star Wars. So the force is everything. The force is in everything because I'm watching the prequels. Uh, he's like, yeah. So either I don't have enough midichlorians or I don't speak in tongues enough to move stuff with my mind. 
Um, one of those, but I think that's, yeah. Yeah. So it's actually a really interesting historical story about the way that um, Eastern religious texts make it into Europe and get translated and read um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which is the time that the philosophy is being done that Paul Tillich, who uses that term, is going to draw on. So um, just in terms of tracing the sources and trying to figure out who read what that fit into Tillich, that could be a really interesting connection to see. Um, I would love to see a dissertation on that if anybody is working, looking for a dissertation topic on German idealism um, and Paul Tillich. Um, so yeah, I mean, fascinating thought. Which is another class that Tripp's doing with Dan Koch uh, on Tillich and reading that book together, The Courage to Be, I think is a connection. Yeah, a couple more. We got like five minutes. In the back. Yeah, should be a circle. Yes. Yeah, I, I think so, there's a difference. First off, I want to do my best to tell you, I'm going to try to engage with you openly and honestly, but I'm from Michigan. <laughs> nah, and you're wearing an Ohio State okay. sweater. So I'm trying to get past that. Uh, okay, well, we'll try to evangelize each other. Um, what I would want to say that is, I, I made a really quick throwaway comment about how um, quote unquote love can become a tool of power, mm -hmm. right? So in terms of the force and the way that the force can be manipulated for good or evil, the sense of everything being interconnected can be manipulated for good or evil. And so God as a concept can be used in positive and negative ways. So that's how I would say maybe they're not as distinct because ultimately what it comes down to is the choices we make on how to use them. Yeah. I, I feel like it really depends on how you think of love. Same as how you define God. How Same as how you define God is, yeah. Cool. Here we go. Yeah. Um, I love the name of the society. It was called Earth. Earth. Yeah. It wasn't really a rational name. Mm. Yeah. 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 Rightly so. I liked it, but I think of it more as the movie that tells us how Han Solo became the man who would become Han Solo later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's all the way there. But that's a really fascinating point about the bots. That, Absolutely. Yeah, that getting off the ground there. Yeah. I think that all the time people just bring up either the prequels or Rogue One or Solo, usually not Rogue One. And it's like, okay, but like, did you watch it on your own agency or did you? And it was the first movie after The Last Jedi. And so there was the, the fallout of the schism of the fandom yeah. when it comes to The Last Jedi. Um, and, then, and then people being like, well, I'm going to protest or I'm going to not see that. I've, I've lost my trust of this franchise and how Disney's handling it and those kinds of things. And then so I'm going to protest by not going. Um, where I went in, I was so like, <laughs> I was so deconstructed and undressed by The Last Jedi that I went in going, I'm going to go in with new expectations. I'm just going to go in nothing. I brought in, I, I learned from TJ, that's his MO. Um, and I went in and I had a blast. 
but I felt like because my posture went in, like I'm just going to go to this movie, and and I was like, wow, maybe I should go into all movies like that. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. yes. I go into faith like that. Maybe I go into church like that. Listen to sermons like that. But um, I think I think that's that's a fan fantastic yeah. point about all those things. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I do have a question that um, when George Lucas wrote the original Star Wars, mm-hmm. he had planned out as far as geological No. No, I, to me, it seems entirely, well, I'm much younger than everyone else here, but um, it seems entirely accidental. Uh, George Lucas was writing for, and I, I want to say the original studio was Universal. I don't know. He, he's writing. He's trying to, you know, exist. He's trying to live. So he needs to write to, to make money. Uh, he had just put out American Graffiti, which was okay, but it had its own problems. So it wasn't going to go out on time. And so he's scrambling, trying to write something new. And that's, he sees the Hidden Fortress and he's got ideas in his head. And there's a lot of, so I'm on Systematic Ecology. Uh, we just talked about this pretty recently. And I don't think I have time to cover it all here. Uh, but check us out. I don't remember the episode title, but I'll find it and I'll. Systematic Geekology with me, me and Will and Nick are also. We're all boom. Look at this, friends. Uh, no, but I, I think you're right. He tried to get. He wanted to write uh, Flash Gordon. He wanted yes, to do like a movie of Flash he, Gordon. He wanted to remake Flash Gordon, and and they said no. And so he said, "Well, I'm gonna write my own." So he's a fan of Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and and all that kind of pulp sci-fi stuff and then saw the the japanese yeah. and then he thing, saw the hidden fortress. the hidden, hidden fortress so he wrote his own and then and that's kind of what came out of it so the full plan of whether vader was going to be the dad or not or those kind of leia and lucas as siblings mm-hmm. i think those were coming as mm-hmm. as he was writing yeah. as a process so, but i think the overall story arc he went he was he had seen sci-fi and and said i'm going to make it but make it more faster more intense yeah. and so that's what drew him to do this and then it just yeah, I, I actually, I was telling somebody the other day that I actually judged time uh, by, it was of course, Christ, uh, you know, year 2000 AD, but also like 1977. So if something, I see something before 1977, it's like, oh, that was five years before Star Wars. Or 1990s, that's 15 years after. Because I do think of like how the world experienced movies and storytelling before and after Star Wars is a pretty significant way to think of how, how we see the world and the blockbuster and the movies and the franchises and the toys and yeah. Day, day, yep. <laughs> oh, mm. that's a good story. So you watched the movie. <laughs> three. <laughs> yeah, three tickets. Yeah. Story. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but I, I do think. <laughs> Heck so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I do think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. So, Look at. 
And that's More how Star need Wars happened. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> most of the religious implication are were accidental, but it's not like he didn't think about it at all because he, you know, he puts out his massive screenplay first draft, and he, you know, he's written the entire trilogy at this point, vaguely, and he's changed some things, but he's also started writing the the backstory. He started writing the prehistory of of his story, so it's not something that he didn't think about at all. It's just not what he was focusing on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, yeah. Oh, yeah. But even the, the actors on the set um, didn't know what they were getting into either in, in Dallas. And that. It is 12.15. I know lunch is coming out. We will have more time to talk with us later or out there at lunch, pick our yeah. brains. Yeah. And um, Travis will be around. Thank yeah. you, Travis, for your appreciation. Yeah. Fantastic. My pleasure. Thanks, y'all. Where can, um, where can people find you? Where can people find oh, you? I'm, people? I'm on most platforms just with my name, so I'm pretty easy to find. Cool, Sweet. cool. Yeah. All right, thanks, y'all. Yeah. If you would like to talk about the theology of lightsaber duels, I will be around. <laughs>